This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. Um, you know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our family. And good morning. Thank you very much for joining us on Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. Glad to be along with you. A nice show ahead for us here later. Uh, Bridget Jaipal Valenza is going to be talking with psychologist Ursi Bankhead, who spent uh, much of her youth in the uh, East Side neighborhood that, of course, is impacted by the shooting three Saturdays ago. And also later on, Miles Gresham from the uh, Partnership for the Public Good will be with Dave Debo. Well, right now, we're pleased uh, to be joined by uh, the Reverend Corey Gibson of Calvary Baptist Church here in Buffalo. Good morning to you, Reverend. Good morning, Jay. Thank you so very kindly for having me this morning. I most certainly am pleased to have you. And when I talked to you last week, you said you wanted to be part of this conversation uh, moving forward. Obviously, you're a busy man. There's been so much happening in uh, your uh, your uh, parish and, of course, uh, throughout the east side right now. But uh, as we are now what, just uh, a couple of weeks out of this mass shooting that occurred at the Tops, uh, what has str- struck you about what has been going on in the community so far? Well, for me, I think just the unity that this tragic uh, incident has brought about here within not only our local community here on the east side of Buffalo, uh, but throughout the city as a whole, it has been refreshing uh, just to see a city which has historically uh, been divided in so many regards come together to not only rally and to put our arms around the family members of those victims uh, whose lives were tragically taken, Uh, but who have also come together to ask the question, uh, what can I do uh, so that I can make sure something like this doesn't happen again? And what more specifically can I do to ensure uh, that we help to address the needs that have come about as a result of this tragedy? I most certainly want to get into that, but uh, it was interesting you talked about the unity, and we've heard that from other people as well. There are some skeptics who say, though, once uh, the media cameras move off of the east side, which, of course, on a national level, have, it's pretty much uh, the case so far here. Um, do you see a new hope for greater unity? And I'm, I'm talking about in terms of the racial divide at this moment, because you know, there's you know, been study after study that said Buffalo is among the most segregated cities in the so. United States. What about that? Do you have a, a, a better sense right now? Well, I'm one who certainly believes uh, in hope. I I maintain hope. That is uh, what I preach on a weekly basis. That's what I teach uh, on a regular basis. So I do have hope that there uh, is a new uh, found sense of unity uh, after all that has transpired. The unfortunate reality is that, as you've already mentioned, uh, once the media's attention is no longer spotlighting uh, incidents where things like this occur, Uh, Unfortunately, we tend to lose momentum. We tend to uh, die down as the coverage does. But I believe that uh, this, uh, because it's happened so close uh, to home, that it it certainly has put us in a position here in the city uh, to ensure that we, again, position ourselves to ensure that we are doing our very best uh, to uh, not only maintain a sense of unity, but to start addressing, more importantly, those tough issues uh, that we have shied away from for so long regarding uh, systemic racism, regarding white supremacy. I believe we're now in a position now where we're forced because, again, of its proximity. We've heard of these incidents taking place uh, miles away in other states and other cities. But to have it happen right here in our very own city, I think it's put us in a great position where we no longer can sit back and act as if those uh, issues don't exist. 
you talk about hope, and of course, that is always very encouraging. I I would think that uh, in your position, of course, hope is something that you're going to have with you uh, to, throughout your days here on uh, on this uh, planet. But at the same time, what about anything that's giving you a concrete sense that yes, things could be different, can be different. I mean, have you heard from? those people who really can make a difference, right? I mean, you know, we, we can do all the ground, uh, grassroots that we want, but there are people in power who have access to capital and have access to policy that can make a difference. Any sense right now that there is a change there? Well, I think we've always, for uh, years, have always talked about holding those elected officials and those uh, who have political power, holding them accountable. But I think now the accountability level uh, has really gone up in many regards. Uh, that now, because we've had a national spotlight, uh, that individuals will have to, again, uh, be held accountable for what they've uh, promised. I think now we also have to uh, look at really just the long-term impact of what has taken place. And so when we look at, again, those resources that were uh, really uh, beginning to come into our community when this tragedy occurred with food distribution, having conversations uh, regarding having multiple options uh, for individuals within the community to take advantage of uh, having access, access, affordable access uh, to uh, mental health services, grief support services. Uh, those things are, again, not those aren't issues that we haven't had on the table before. But I'm, I'm very hopeful that now there will be a greater level of accountability for those individuals, as well as uh, those persons who are on the ground, uh, not only making sure that we hold those persons in power accountable, but also making sure uh, that we're trying to figure out how we can create some synergy so that we can address the people uh, collectively. Interesting to hear. Needs collectively. Interesting to hear that you mentioned the mental health access in your yeah. conversation here. Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of that conversation going on. A, a lot of firms have opened up and have been available at, say, the the Johnny B. Wiley Pavilion and things along those lines. Yeah. But from you, for uh, a, a pastor who's talking with uh, uh, parishioners uh, throughout uh, the week, I'm, I'm sure. Are you sensing a real mental health crisis, for lack of a better term, or perhaps maybe you can position that and nuance it a little bit more, but that there are some real concerns coming out of this shooting for you know, other members of the community? Those concerns were already there, Jay. And what I mean by that is prior uh, to this mass uh, shooting, we had just the mental effects that had not been addressed uh, via COVID, uh, what had taken place via, via COVID. And and what uh, type of mental toll and impact that took. But even long before that, when we just talk again about uh, systemic racism, and we talk again about the uh, lack of access that has plagued uh, communities, uh, such as the east side of Buffalo and other urban contexts, uh, it's always, there always has been a need prior to uh, this incident taking place. But now I, be I believe that we're starting to begin to have, again, those tough conversations about not only uh, dismantling some of the misnomers around mental health support, all right, because, again, uh, those individuals who reside uh, in this community, people of color, uh, we don't always have a high level of trust uh, as it relates to sharing uh, our feelings and sharing how we're doing emotionally. As a matter of fact, uh, it's just something that was instilled in us, uh, even within our home environment, that what happens in the house stays in the house. And so, again, that's already a barrier that we've had to already try to tear down. But again, now that we're in a position where we're starting to see uh, what those resources are, and we're also starting to see that those resources can be made available uh, if persons uh, who, again, are in power make the concerted effort. Now we're in a place where we can start to not only have those resources at our disposal, uh, but start to let individuals know uh, that these resources are here and that we can uh, make sure that you have access to them. Our guest on uh, Buffalo What's Next is uh, the Reverend Corey Gibson of Calvary Baptist Church here in Buffalo. Uh, Reverend Gibson, you're a native of Buffalo. You're educated uh, yes. in Virginia, but started your, uh, uh, your, um, your ministry in Virginia before coming back here. 
can you talk then a little bit about how the racism of Buffalo, how the poverty of Buffalo wears on our black and uh, men or young men and women? Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, as you mentioned, I was not only born and raised here, uh, but also, again, uh, educated here uh, until uh, my time in uh, 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 college when I attended Virginia Union University and then spent a great number of years uh, in Virginia before returning back here in 2019. I think the biggest uh, blow uh, that it often that oftentimes is impacted by uh, men of color, uh, African-American men more specifically, who grow up uh, in the inner city, on the east side of Buffalo, uh, there's a blow to your self-esteem, all right? Uh, oftentimes, the, uh, 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 oftentimes, again, because of the lack of resources, uh, we oftentimes feel, growing up here on the east side of Buffalo, that possibilities are, are not uh, are limitless, but that they are limited. Uh, and so, uh, again, I have been very fortunate to have a number of doors uh, open for me. I've been very uh, fortunate to have many opportunities afforded to me. But that is not the case for all. And so I think that, again, living here on the east side of Buffalo as a, a, a African-American male, more specifically, uh, it, it's, it's very challenging because, again, you feel as if, uh, you don't have the same level of opportunity as other individuals. And so I pray that even as I return here to the city, and, and I'm not the only one, but there are a number of other individuals who have uh, received formal training, who have uh, been educated and who have come right back home here to the city. I think that, you know, we have a responsibility to help uh, to lift up that, uh, that, that, that misnomer that you can uh, certainly excel beyond where you are now, that the possibilities that you have are uh, indeed uh, limitless, and that, uh, again, where you are now is not where uh, you will often, uh, where, where you always will have to remain. And most certainly it's quite the scene over at the uh, Jefferson Avenue tops. Uh, the uh, memorials that have been laid there in honor of the victims, of course, uh, very touching, and the amount of them is is really kind of overwhelming to a, a certain extent. There's no silver bullet, I'm sure, one specific thing that would help uh, and make a big difference. But if there was one thing, if there was a place to start for Jefferson Avenue, for the east side of Buffalo, what would it be? Again, I think that I, number one, applaud you for, under, you know, for also highlighting the fact that, again, you know, there are multiple uh, issues, multiple layers uh, to this rebuilding process. But I think that a great starting point at this particular time, Jay, would be to continue uh, to funnel those resources and to help build up uh, what is uh, right here in our backyard at, Jeff at Jefferson Avenue. I think that we not only just talk about uh, having the emergence of various uh, grocery stores where individuals can take part in, but I think we start to talk about uh, creating a com more community gardens. I think we start to talk about building up the corridor. I think we have to start talking about uh, infrastructure and how we, again, uh, not only ensure that individuals have access to food and access to uh, banking systems and have access to uh, pharmacies and things of that nature, but also have access to jobs. Because if we're able to employ, we're able to build up infrastructure, uh, you have to have individuals employed to maintain those systems. And so by doing that, I really believe that it's a start uh, to letting individuals know that we not only care about the food need that you have, but we also care about building you up holistically. Uh, it goes right back to that old uh, age-old adage that, that if you uh, feed a man, uh, if you teach a man how to fish, uh, you'll feed him for, for a lifetime. And I think that's where we are now. We have to create those uh, systems whereby we're able to teach people how to fish. Of course, uh, the, the shootings at the Tops happened on a Saturday. Sunday morning services at, uh, around the area must have been uh, memorable and very sad. What about for, for your congregation? Well, again, we are having conversations, uh, once again, similar to conversations that took place uh, after the horrendous mass shooting uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, right now, we, again, uh, have been 
uh, heightened as it relates to our level of security. We have been in conversation with BPD as well as uh, members of our congregation to increase um, security presence, uh, both those individuals who are uh, plain clothes as well as uniformed uh, police officers and security. Uh, however, you know, the, the fact still remains that people are uh, very much so uh, nervous. Uh, I would dare to even say afraid, even being a part of a faith community where we're uh, taught biblically that we have not been given a spirit of fear in our humanity. People are uh, nervous, particularly when we talk about congregations such as Calvary, which are predominantly, uh, that is predominantly comprised of uh, individuals who are uh, 60 plus. Um, places just don't feel safe any longer. And so we're trying to do our very best to ensure uh, that individuals feel safe when they come in uh, so that they can receive what is needed upon their arrival. Uh, but as you can imagine, just uh, not only here at Calvary, but throughout the country, uh, people are, are just nervous because, again, if something isn't done uh, as it relates to policy and if individuals are still able to get their hands uh, on uh, weapons, uh, such as the one that was used, uh, then certainly again, there, there, there's a level of concern. So there's a, a great level of concern there, but we're trying to do our very best, uh, not only here in the city, but across the country, uh, to ensure that uh, members of the congregation, parishioners, if you will, uh, feel safe upon their arrival. And, and Reverend, we've heard stories from other folks aren't going out. We, we're not going to go out to the grocery store. We're going to stay right. in. We just, like you said, there's that fear element there. Good to hear that you say that you, you sense that there's a, a, a focus on security inside the city, but are you comfortable with what has been accomplished so far on an official level when it comes to securing the city of Buffalo to the best uh, possibility? Again, we know that uh, there are limitations uh, within our policing, uh, and we know that there are a number of other issues that uh, need to be addressed. Uh, I believe, again, that because I've uh, had access uh, with, uh, again, individuals who are in position to ensure that we have a police presence, they have been very receptive. Uh, they not only have been receptive, but they have ensured uh, that we will have a police presence on hand uh, whenever we, we gather as a congregation, and that has held true to form. Uh, but again, I also believe that it requires more. And what I mean by that is it requires more conversation in terms of uh, not only the policing presence, but how do we equip, going back to what we talked about earlier, how do we equip individuals here within the community uh, to uh, be a part of this solution? How, how do we ensure that they're uh, adequately uh, equipped uh, to take the exam and to be a part of uh, this civil service and others? Uh, and then again, making sure uh, that, again, the conversation doesn't uh, die down uh, as, again, we begin to return to some sense of normalcy. And I use that term very loosely. But I think that we, again, have to continue to hold a sense of accountability all around. Some sense of normalcy uh, it does uh, have a, a certain interesting ring to it, doesn't it, uh, at this time? How about for you, just as somebody, uh, a, a native of Buffalo, and, of course, like you said, a, a faith leader here in Buffalo, uh, how have things been for you in the last couple of weeks? Well, I, I must tell you that it's been extremely heavy. Uh, it's been extremely heavy because, again, you want to address uh, many of the immediate needs uh, that have uh, come about as a result of uh, this tragedy and as a result of losing uh, this uh, grocery store here in the community. But also you have a great level of concern about creating long-term impact, being in it for the long haul. So, again, it's been very uh, heavy, but at the same time, I'm hopeful, I'm engaged uh, and energized, I should say, uh, by the work that is ahead. Uh, I am uh, uh, confident that we will continue to forge relationships within the community. And, I, again, I think while we're at this place where we're, uh, you know, just three weeks or so, uh, or two weeks or so uh, from this uh, tragic incident, I think that now we're in a great position where we can continue to continue to engage in those conversations and do our part to see to it uh, that we don't just return to life as it was, 
but that we continue to work uh, to become even greater as a community, to become even better uh, as, as a nation. Reverend Corey Gibson of Calvary Baptist Church here in Buffalo, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jace. Time is uh, 1020 coming up on Buffalo. What's next? We've got Bridget Jaipal Valenza. She'll be joined by psychologist uh, Ursi Banka. That's coming up on Buffalo. What's next? Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. Adirondacks. Canadian Rockies by rail. Chautauqua and American narrative. And so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS now available on YouTube. Watch, listen, engage, play, and learn with Buffalo Toronto Public Media Stations and our weekly newsletter, The List. Sign up to receive the email at wned.org and find out the best shows to watch, the great music to listen to, the important news you can't miss, and the many ways you can engage with our public media family. Sign up now at wned.org. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, where we critically examine and have real conversations about what led to the top shooting massacre and how we fix the issue. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Today, we're joined by Dr. Ursi Bankhead, a local psychologist. Ursi, it's, it's been a difficult time. Um, how, how are you? You know, I am, I'm doing okay right now. You know, I'm a Buffalo girl, so this is my hometown. You know, I left for a decade or so, and I've been back 20 years. Um, But I think, you know, it's good to have community and family and friends support, and that's been a positive. Now, you've been down in that neighborhood, working in the neighborhood, assisting. How, how are people um, you know, it's a mix. So, you know, I was able to go down um, on Friday and offer some support to some colleagues. Um, and, and it was really, I would say, emotionally for myself and others, a mixed bag, you know, where you have collegiality, you have community support, and you see everyone coming in, coming together. But at the same time, there was this feeling of, you know, unrelenting grief, you know, as you're there, Um, you know, so it, I would assume that it's, you know, the normal mixture of emotions that people go through when there's a tragedy, um, as well as concerns about, again, what happens later, you know, once the news cameras move on, um, and once we're expected, you know, to go back to normal, understanding that there's no new, that there will not be a norm, you know, as a result. Um, But I did see people struggling. Um, I saw a lot of hugs, you know, a lot of memorials, um, and also anger, you know, and we can't, you know, ignore that there's legitimate anger, sadness mixed in with those pockets of support and love and joy. Is, do you get a sense of survivor's guilt happening right now? Um, that I'm sure that that's happening. Um, and I don't know how it couldn't, right? Psychologically, you know, people who were there, someone is saying, you know, it's not, you know, well, why wasn't it me? Or feeling guilty because they, you know, went into another room or in another section. Um, Did I talk to anyone who experienced that? No, but it's a natural human emotion to say, well, why me? Or why did I survive? You know, just as it's just as normal of a human reaction for someone to say, well, why was it my loved one? You know, or why did I get shot? So I think we need to really normalize that, 
we're going to get, you know, a thousand different responses, sometimes on the same day in the same hour. And that that's really, you know, part of our being human, you know, is to fluctuate through this. It's okay to not be okay. I think that we need to say that, you know, louder for the people in the back, you know, it's okay to not be okay because something horrific, terrible happened. Um, And this isn't something people are going to shrug off in a month or in two months or even next year. This was an incredibly violent, targeted act, you know, on a specific community that was targeted for simply being born, you know, essentially, not even essentially, factually targeted for being born, who happened to be in that place. Um, And so there's going to be naturally years of grief. Obviously, this massacre was predicated on racism. Um, One of the principles was that black people are replacing white people. Um, What do you have to say to that? You know, what I have to say to that is we really need to look at the radicalization of white males, you know, via the Internet, um, via other groups. Right. So this idea of replacement isn't new. Right. You know, this was a conversation going back to Nazi Germany. You know, the Jews will replace us was the refrain. So what happened isn't new. What is new is that it happened in our particular backyard. Um, You know, I think that this is where we need to have various conversations with different communities and honest conversations really about the history of Buffalo as well, right? Um, Around our own ideas, you know, our own behaviors of segregation and so on that allow for these messages to get embedded, you know? So we need to pay attention and definitely, you know, go... No, this isn't about replacement. This is about hatred. This is about prejudice. This is about white supremacy. And be very explicit and really name what's going on. Do you think that racism is a mental health issue? Well, it depends on how on how we want to look at it. What we know is to hate to someone solely for the color of their skin or um orientation or whatever that that's so there is it a mental health issue in the sense of is it something diagnosable no to hate so to target people to victimize them and so on is not a mental health issue in that having a diagnosis of schizophrenia is not going to make someone racist or someone homophobic or transphobic. You know, having a diagnosis of, you know, an anxiety disorder or PTSD, for example, is not going to make you, you know, racist, transphobic, etc. You know, and so when we use that excuse of, you know, someone had to have been mentally ill to have done this, that the, these are two very different concepts. So you can be mentally ill, never, ever, ever do a violent act. Most people with mental illness never, ever, ever would do something like this. Um, hatred is definitely taught. Not saying that there can't be a mental illness component in some cases that, you know, um, you know, pushes this even further. But, you know, we would have to say that going back to the, you know, 1920s and Reconstruction, that all of the South, you know, had a mental illness, right? So when we look at things like the KKK and so on, so you're telling all those swamps, look at, you know, people who protested Ruby Bridges. Were all of those people mentally ill because that was rooted in hate? No, of course it wasn't. It's And so when we go this extremism and a person has been fed, you know, and it's been, again, further indoctrinated and so on, you know, to the point where he says, okay, I believe this, this is my truth, and I'm going to take on these violent acts. Now, again, maybe he does have a mental illness component, but not necessarily. So these are two, again, like I said, very different concepts. I want to move um, off of that, off of him for a moment. Um, and and come back to the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, there have been 
lots of slogans going around and hashtags on social media, Buffalo, you know, Buffalo, Buffalo Strong. Um, given our background, given the history of Buffalo and the history of that neighborhood and why it is the way it is and how it got to that point, this point, what do you say to those slogans? How do you feel about those? So I tie those slogans a little bit into allyship, right? This idea, you know, which is if we're going to say Buffalo and Buffalo Strong and we're going to hashtag it and so on, then what are we doing in action, right? So you can't just say, oh, Buffalo and then ignore the neighborhood in three weeks. Or my question is, we say Buffalo, but were you going through that neighborhood, supporting that neighborhood? Or were you saying perhaps derogatory things or avoiding that neighborhood before, you know, Buffalo and Buffalo Strong, right? So in this moment, it's easy to care because there's a tragedy. But did you care six months ago? Or did you care a year ago? And will you care in another six months or a year? So, you know, my thoughts on this is it is wonderful to have community and it is wonderful that organizations are coming in and some organizations have been there forever. Um, but did you pay attention before and will you pay attention later? Because that's where if we're saying love, right, using the word love, if we're going to use that word, that's where it would manifest, would be in staying involved or invested or caring. So what does a good ally look like? I mean, you know, there are some folks out there who just, they want to help. Mm -hmm. They're not entirely certain how to go about that. Um, and tied in with that is a bit of white fragility, so without wanting to maybe dismiss an ally um, or to give of ourselves in our own grief, in our own tragedy, in our moment, we kind of also have to think of our allies. So how, what, what does a good ally look like, first of all? So I think one of the things we have to recognize is allyship. Um, well, let's define it, right? And really, allyship is coming along someone. It's not, you know, alongside a population or a group. It's not taking over, right? It's not saying, here's what you have to do because here's what I think is good for the community. It's really going into the community and saying, okay, let's have a really honest discussion about what's going on, what needs to happen, what has happened, and the injury it has caused, right? So allyship means I'm paying attention to actions and where my actions may be influenced, um, some of these experiences, you know. So I've had friends who have said, well, what can I do? And I go, you know, listen, join an organization, educate yourself better, and not just any organization, you know. So you may go to, you know, Surge or, you know, something like that. You may, you know, say, well, Maybe I'm going to get involved in ACLU as lawsuits come along. It may be, well, here, how can I help hands-on and, you know, within the community? And all of that's really important. But it's also the perspective you have. Is it I'm going down there to save these people or is it I'm going down there because they've been injured and my job is to work with to help repair the injury? Right. And so that hopefully this injury will not persist. And by the way, when I screw up, because all of us screw up as allies, right, is to hold ourselves accountable, sit back, listen and go, OK, what have I learned from it so that I don't do injury again? Right. So the apology, the action, you know, being engaged and moving forward, you know, within that engagement um, is really, really critical. So there's some ways you read a book and then you say, how do I take what I learned in action? You know, um, 
you know, and it's not just reading books. Who else do I talk to? What else can I learn? And again, how do I hold myself responsible for when I've done in, done a microaggression or when I can say, oh, man, I'm just going to drive through that neighborhood and offer support. And all you did was drive through, you know, and it's just voyeurism. Go, well, what was that about? So allyship is constantly questioning ourselves. So there's a real sense of self-reflection that needs to happen for an ally, for someone to be a a good ally. Right. I mean, allyship is definitely self-reflective. Other than that, it's pretty performative. It is, look at me, look at me. Um, so one would hope that it would be self-reflective. I keep hoping that as a, com- as a community, that our city, you know, our region, that we become self-reflective more so and about how we got here and then do action so that we can get rid of some of the things, not you know, that allowed someone to pinpoint and target a community. I'm Bridget J. Paul Valenza. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. We're talking today to Dr. Ursi Bankhead, a local psychologist, about the Tops massacre. Um, what do you say to microaggressions. So, you know, it's it's certainly a word that, that has come up. Um, how would you explain that to someone to say, okay, this, this is an actual microaggression. This is what you have done. Um, and this is why it's bad. Um, so one of the examples I have, so, you know, microaggression is kind of typically a thoughtless act, right, that's so embedded in our culture. So the example I always give is my husband is a six foot five tall black man, and people get wary around him. Children don't, but adults will sometimes, you know, go, oh, let me avoid this giant man, right? That in and of itself is a microaggression. They've assumed danger, and the aggression part is they've taken action, right? So things including, you know, my title's doctor, I'm a black female, someone's going, oh, you can't be doctor, I want to meet the real Dr. Bankhead, you know. And those things happen, you know, fairly often. So, you know, so sometimes for myself, I will correct people and say, okay, Explain to me what made you say or do that. Help me further understand because it's typically so beneath our awareness, right? When we assume that a couple of someone says, oh, my spouse, and we assume, you know, um, opposite, you know, gender, uh-huh. right? Um, but as far as, you know, race, you know, part of a microaggression is someone driving down Jefferson Avenue and automatically locking their doors and assuming danger. You know, someone who grew up over in those neighborhoods and in the Fruit Belt, I felt very safe. You know, there's issues everywhere, but I grew up very safe. Um, And I don't lock my door any more there than I do in clearance, you know. So, um, yeah, so microaggressions, it's paying attention. And when somebody calls us in or calls us out on those behaviors, again, going back to that reflection and saying, well, why did I respond that way? Right. Again, that really, truly about that self-reflection. So I want to talk a little bit right now about the trauma, the trauma of this, the trauma of what has happened. Trauma stays with the body. Right. Trauma stays with a community. Trauma stays with an individual. Um, How do we deal with that somatic response to the trauma that is being witnessed? You know, I think that this is where, you know, depending on the individual, right? So where faith communities, this is where therapy, psychotherapy, and all of that fits in together, um, which is paying attention. So let's be honest, from trauma, we have everything from insomnia, stomach issues, headaches, higher blood pressure, tension in the shoulders, neck, head, um, muscle weakness, sometimes your joints tighten up. So you have the potential for full body pain or discomfort and so on, as well as psychological. So when we're talking about somatics, the basic, you know, so body issues, the basics are 
paying attention, learning how to do progressive muscle relaxation. In other words, where to tense the body and start to loosen it. Paying attention to where you no longer feel good, but you felt okay a month ago. Learning how to do things like deep breathing, doing apps, but also getting help and talking about the trauma. And I think for the larger community, don't, please don't tell people, well, it's been X amount of time. You all should be over it. This is going to be generations of people learning how to manage trauma. Trauma does not go away. So it's learning how to cope, how to manage, how to deal, and so on. What do you think is next for the community? I think what is next, what I hope is next, is that we go back to having honest discussions about how we got here. We talk to the community honestly about what can help. I hope that our politicians weren't just here for photo ops, you know, and so on. And I think that the community really needs to push, you know, our, you know, community leaders, whatever that means, as well as legislators and so on to say, um, okay, we've been invisible for a long time and it took a shooting for you to pay attention to us. Um, so I'm hoping that not that dialogue and action um, are what comes next. Thank you, Dr. R.C. Bankhead, for joining us for this absolutely necessary and critical discussion. Uh, I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Up next is WBFO News Director David Debo with local lawyer Miles Grisham. Stay with us. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk, Erie County Fair, two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS, now available on YouTube. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this if you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you. Pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to wned.org slash vehicles. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at WBFO.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. This is Dave Debo. Thank you for joining us this morning. My guest this uh, next 20 minutes or so is Miles Gresham from the Partnership for the Public Good. He is a policy fellow there. You may have heard his name in the news because he has often been involved in the discussion about police reform. We're certainly going to touch on that. And uh, in a general sense, there are issues about, well, Partnership for Public Good, public good, uh, public policy is an issue that we can get into as well. So thanks for joining us for the discussion. Miles, glad you're here. Hey, Dave, thanks for having me. A lot of the discussion, I think, immediately after the shooting was, oh, the shooter's not from here. I'm assuming you would take a different point of view that that does not matter, that systemic racism is here, that racism is here, and the fact that he came from Binghamton is a so what. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, uh, uh, first of all, you know, um, uh, Binghamton is part of our sort of uh, outer orbit, if you will. It's not that far away. Um, but, you know, if you'll recall, uh, the day after the shooting, uh, there was um, uh, racist graffiti uh, sprayed on a family's fence in, in, uh, in Niagara Falls. Um, you know, they regularly have uh, white supremacists running for office uh, in the North Towns. Um, so, no, I don't think it matters. Um, uh, systemic racism, like we were talking about, didn't, you know, pick up a gun and kill people. Um, but that philosophy, that, that deep-seated racism and hatred is all around this area. Let me go a little bit further. 
there are white supremacist candidates in the North Towns. What do you mean when you say that? Uh, well, if you look at like you know some of the folks who um, sometimes run in like Lewiston and in those areas, um, there are folks who you know uh, will say that they want to keep Lewiston white, that they want to um, you know reflect white supremacist values. So I mean, this is not you know you go into certain parts of um, even our suburbs around Buffalo, you'll see Confederate flags flying. Um, you know, so again, uh, racism. And, 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 and racist is not something that's exclusive to Binghamton. It's all around uh, uh, Buffalo. It's all around Western New York. And it's all around this country. Do you think because it's prevalent that it has become unnoticed and tolerated? Um, by some people, yeah. I mean, uh, I think, you know, as a black person, uh, you can't help but notice it. Um, and it's intolerable. Um, you know, for people yeah, but who... by no means was I saying we should accept it. Sure. But I think uh, the populace at large, white and black, I guess, um, probably doesn't notice it as much, maybe, is what I'm thinking. I, you know, I, I don't know. I think, I think that um, we do um, kind of I, – I think, I think as a black person, and I think some white people do, I think they notice it. But I think, you know, if you speak up on every instance of racism – um, in this society, you're known as someone who's, you know, too woke or someone who's, you know, um, um, you know, uh, uh, too focused on race, if you will. Um, you know, and so I think that there is a degree of I don't know if tolerance is the white word, right word, but there's a degree of acceptance, you know, whether you're dealing with it in the workplace, whether you're dealing with it out on the street. You know, as long as someone doesn't come up to you and call you the N word, um, you know, it's 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 unfortunately sort of, you know, you kind of go about your day. Um, until it until it does something that you can't ignore, um, I, like what happened on May 14th. I don't want to make you any more of a personal example than you're willing to make yourself. So if, if this is a bad question, just let me know and we'll move on. How do you deal with it? Um, anything short of the N-word, if you just see some sort of racism that's directed at you, do you speak up? Do you, do you, do you confront it? I generally do, yes. Um, but then again, you know, I... Um, I'm an attorney. I have the ability to, you know, speak up and not uh, lose my job. You know okay. what I mean? Um, every black person doesn't have that privilege in Western New York. So, yeah, I personally do. Um, and, and also, you know, the reason that I, I work in public policy is because, um, you know, I believe in, in fighting it where it affects us and, and my people the most. And that's in uh, in our public policies, in, in the way that, you know, we deal with each other and in government. You know, so. Miles Gresham is with us. He's with the Partnership for Public Good. This might be as good a point as any then to talk about the partnership. What exactly is it? What does it do? So the Partnership for the Public Good is a local uh, think tank. Uh, we work with over 300 community partners. We do um, uh, research um, that sort of helps inform their work. Um, so public policy research on things like criminal justice reform, uh, like segregation, uh, like economic and, and political policy issues. Um, so that's, that's in a nutshell um, what we do. And back in 2018, the partnership came out with a report called A City Divided, A Brief History of Segregation in Buffalo. Document some of that, uh, looking at the fact that we are such a segregated city. Give me the highlights. Yeah, so that that report was done by uh, my colleague, uh, Anna Blotto. Um, The highlights, really, it talks about the the history of segregation in Buffalo and how... um, it translates into us being a segregated city still today. So um, it starts with, um, you know, the history of uh, uh, racial uh, covenants, um, excluding people from uh, selling their homes uh, to black people. Um, Once those were struck down as illegal in uh, 1917, I believe it was, um, there were still uh, private uh, racial covenants. So first there were like racial zoning laws, right, that the government actually put into place. Those were struck down in 1917. Then you have racial covenants in private uh, contracts and deeds preventing people from selling their homes to black people. You have um, um, FHA policies where uh, loans would not be extended uh, to people who lived in certain neighborhoods or people of a certain race. Basically redlining. Yes, redlining, right. Sure. Um, and that's redlining on the federal level. You will also had redlining on the private level with respect to banks um, who would not uh, give loans out to black and brown people. And even today, even though, you know, we think that redlining has gone away, um, you know, I as a black person with my credit score and income um, am less likely to get a loan than a white person with the same credit score and income today. Mm. So, And then you throw in some housing discrimination. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in what the heck, let's put a... Uh... 
let's put a throughway, an expressway. We'll call it the Kensington. Just for a little through the middle. Dazzle. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Uh, destroy some communities. Yep. Clearly, the east side became the east side, you would argue, because of of design, because yes. of these policies. Yes, because of those policies, because of, you know, I mean, even, you know, I was I was a, a kid in the in the 80s. I was born in, in 86. But, you know, we think of, you know, uh, Jimmy Griffin, uh, you know, deciding on which streets to plow first. You know, mm-hmm. he said, you know, we have to plow the south side and the, basically the areas where white people live first because those people have to go to work. You know what I mean? So there's this this sort of reinforced uh, racism throughout time uh, that these designs help to ferment and that people, you know, uh, help to reinforce. And so that's where why you get a segregated city where 85 percent of black people live east of Main Street in the city of Buffalo. Some of other numbers from the report. White people are 76% of the Erie County population, but only 45% of the city of Buffalo. Black people are 13% of the Erie County population, but 37% of the city of Buffalo. And of all the people who identify as black within the city of Buffalo, the the, the number you just mentioned, 85% live east of Main Street. Right. If we have this kind of segregation and someone like the shooter in Binghamton knows about it and comes here to perpetrate violence... Talk about what happens after that. Does does the does the segregated structure engender in any way the violence or at least uh, systemic racism? I think it made us uh, sort of sitting ducks in a particular way um, because the shooter just had to you know research you know where where is the black grocery store right. Um, there shouldn't be a black grocery store. There should be grocery stores where everyone has equal mm. access to. But we know um, that, you know, the east side of Buffalo is um, what's known as a food desert, right? Which means it's very difficult, particularly if you don't have a car, which many people do not, to have access to a grocery store where you have fresh food and, and, and vegetables and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, all he had to do was search for the black grocery store, which is the Tops on Jefferson, um, which is the only uh, full-service grocery store in that area um and then and then go and and you know enact uh you know the violence that racism engenders you know just just uh carry that out in a particularly heinous way so his hatred wasn't a product of the segregation but the ease of his mission i guess was you're saying yeah i mean i i think that the segregation certainly reinforces hatred right um, you know, it, it helps to otherize a community, right? Um, you know, I, I know I've been told growing up um, in Buffalo, you know, by white people on Hurdle, you know, go back to the east side, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, this idea that black people live over there and that white people live over here. You know, it's it's the concept of the other. Um, it's the concept of, you know, we don't go to the east side of Main Street. It's the concept of, you know, I've heard had colleagues talk about how frightened they were of having to drive home late. And they, you know, had to take Jefferson um, from from the uh, sort of Larkinville complex where I used to work. Right. Um, so this otherizing uh, uh, concept is reinforced by that segregation. So no, redlining and segregation did not, you know, physically pick up a gun and shoot people. Um, but certainly that segregation contributed to that idea of otherizing that that shooter internalized. And in all of the discussions about this event, um, I think it's a given that people say, um, whether they mean it or not, you you hear the phrase, hate has no home here, that 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 hate can perhaps be addressed. But the how, to my mind, is perhaps a little harder. Segregation, on the other hand, there are practical remedies for, no? Yeah, there are practical remedies for segregation. I would push back. And, on that and, and that's that... not to say hate isn't something we should address. I'll get to that in a second. But, right. but what can we do about segregation? Uh, well, um, we can dismantle the policies that caused it in the first place, right? So we can be unequivocal about the remnants of redlining that still exist in private banks today. Um, we can um, make sure that there are more opportunities for affordable housing, not just in the city of Buffalo, but also in the county where affordable housing numbers are, are quite abysmal. Um, you know, we can... Um, uh, you know, support and fund the black-led organizations on the ground that are responding to this crisis right now. I mean, there's a, a an African heritage food co-op that's been in existence for years um, that owns farmland, that works to deliver fresh produce to black and brown people in this city. Those people have been working overtime since this shooting happened. Um, 
fund their grocery store, fund their brick and mortar so that there's more than one option for black people on the east side of Buffalo to go and get their fruits and veg. You know, there are all different kinds of ways to do, you know, these policies that created segregation were created by people and they can be dismantled by people. And I think that's how you hit at the the root of the problem. Are you saying people or are you essentially saying government? Well, should well, Should budgets change when you say funding? Is that a role for city or state or federal government? Or are you talking about uh, entrepreneurship from the outside? What, from where does funding come? Well, um, when I say people, I do mean government because this is America, right? We have okay. a government of the people, right? It comes from all different levels. Um, private businesses are generally incentivized by government in this country, right? So we can incentivize the African Heritage Food Co-op just like we incentivize, just like we give tax, tax breaks to a TOPS or a Wegmans to open up in Buffalo or anywhere else, right? So there's that part of it. Um, there are folks who want to, you know, donate in the aftermath of a crisis, right? Um, donate to the people. You know, the the biggest crisis is that right now um, – it's a real food desert in 14208 because the one supermarket that was there is now shut down and people didn't have that many options before. So fund the people giving them options. If you want to give money in the wake of this crisis, you know, give it to people who are um, delivering food and, and getting food to people and doing so in a sustainable way. So it's not just, you know, food deliveries in an emergency, but an actual, you know, brick and mortar, another option that comes out of this, you know, so that's a way to do it. So governments can fund it, private and Individuals can fund it. Um, budgets can fund it, right? Budgets, as we talked about, are, are moral documents, right? So in our city, in our county, in our state, um, instead of funding, um, you know, more policing, um, which which has a limited, you know, uh, uh, re- you know, uh, return on investment, mm. um, um, fund economic opportunities for for you know people who have historically been discriminated against. And I knew you'd get there because it is a. a uh a policy area for you particularly. Uh, you you were a member of the uh, Erie County Corrections Specialist Advisory Board, um, the Erie County Police Reform and Reinvention Task Force. Criminal justice reform has a role in this discussion. Tell me what it is. Well, I, I think that um, policing has played a role in uh, enforcing segregation, in enforcing and reinforcing the concept of racism, um, in Buffalo and throughout this country, right? So um, one of the things that we can do uh, to push back against racism is to think about policing differently, right? That means holding uh, the police that do commit misconduct and that brutalize and kill black people unjustly, holding those people accountable and not allowing them to uh, to keep their jobs. It also means um, training existing police, the ones who are good, um, to, you know, engage at the community on a different level so that they're not, uh, so that the community is seen as, um, um, uh, you know, neighbors, you know, so that mm. the police see them as members of their own community instead of enemy combatants. Again, the idea of other, the idea of over there, you know, that's the thing that we have to break down when we talk about policing. Um, you know, so, so you know, have the, uh, hold the police accountable and also um, integrate them into our community so that, you know, there's not this sense of otherness. There's this sense of police are members of our community protecting the rest of us. And before we close here, I did want to jump back to just the idea of eliminating hate. I know that that gets theoretical very quickly. Mm-hmm. How do we do it, though? What can be done? So, uh, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm um, uh, from a philosophical perspective, uh, first and foremost, I'm a Christian. Um, one of the things that we believe is that we don't, uh, you know, that we fight against uh, uh, principalities in high places, right? So this idea is that we don't fight against the people, we fight against the idea. And so, you know, striking back against this terror act doesn't mean striking back against this person or the community they come from. It means striking back at the idea. And that means, again, um, um, dismantling uh, the systems that have allowed hate to thrive, dismantling segregation, dismantling, uh, um, you know, uh, policing in a way that brutalizes people. Um, um, That's how I think we strike back at hate. Um, You know, you can't do it by, uh, you know, training people not to hate people anymore. You do it by giving 
historically discriminated against people the same opportunities and the same access as everyone else has. All right. Miles, thanks so much for the discussion. Great time. Thanks for having me, Dave. Miles Gresham is with the Partnership for Public Good. Thanks to all of today's guests. Uh, earlier, obviously, we had the Reverend Corey Gibson and Ursuline Bankhead. And uh, eventually down the road, we'd love to have you a guest. We want to hear from you. You can use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app and leave us a message or send your comments and questions via Twitter, at WBFO, or email news at WBFO.org. Again, thank you for listening. This is a program that really unapologetically confronts the reasons why that May 14th mass shooting occurred and what role we can all take in solving the problems that uh, spring from that. We'll be back for you tomorrow. That is our promise to you here at WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL on Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.